We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Welcome back, my friends. It's a Constitution Thursday episode of Afternoons Live right here on KFIB, 1360 AM Modesto, KWSX, 1280 AM Stockton, everywhere via iHeartRadio. Yes, we know it's Wednesday. It matters not to us. That's right. Every day should be Constitution Thursday, right? Yes. And that way say every day should be Christmas. <laughs> every day should be Constitution every, Thursday. Every week should be Shark Week. Yeah, I could go for that. So for those of you that are texting me about uh, the internet problem, can I can I point one little fact out here? We are not the IT department. There's no point in yelling at us about it. Really, it's it's not even your company. What do you care? People I mean, are, we're still yelling at us. Oh, they're telling me. Eh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I'd tell you to go look on the text machine, but you can't. I can't. It's really not our problem. I don't see how it affects us <laughs> it, it, or affects anybody but us. Right. You know what I mean? And uh, we have a backup plan. I've got the text machine on my phone, so feel free to text away. But yes. we're not the IT department, so. Correct. No sense in informing us with what do you think the problem is. Because, <laughs> frankly, I'm going to be in here, and I'm not going to pass on the information. Hello, quick cognizio. Stand up. Tell those who oppose liberty, don't tread on me. That's like when people call me and go, hey, tell Dave. Right. No. I'm not going to tell Dave. I used to do the same thing when I was uh, when I was producing shows. Hey, call, tell, tell so-and-so. That, no. You can tell him. Yeah, I'm not doing I'm that. I'm perfectly willing to let right. you tell him. This is uh, it's not my job. <laughs> you know, I, somebody suggested the other day, one of my friends, I was, I was talking to him about the tell Dave phenomenon, and they said that we should do a segment on the show called Tell Dave. And it's basically just like transcribed instances of people saying, hey, tell Dave. Right. Uh, and just me writing it down. And then and then and then we'll just like you know play like some kind of little theme song or something mm-hmm. like that, you know. What do Could we be even have funnier to because tell Dave? And we just tell you at the end of the week, right? <laughs> so it's all totally out of context. <laughs> like the texts we get in three days later. Then, yeah, yeah, those yeah. are always fun. So it was a time of great strife internally in the nation. Recent debates in the nation and in Congress over the civil rights of the people had left the country deeply divided. When Congress finally decided to just act upon the issue, the inevitable result, of course, a lawsuit claiming that the actions of Congress had exceeded the powers delineated to it by the Constitution. And indeed, the claim went so far as to compel behavior by citizens that violated their own personal convictions and beliefs in violation of their Fifth Amendment rights by forcing them to provide goods and services that ran counter to their personal beliefs. That might sound like I pulled it out of the headlines of today, but I did not. That's actually 1964 when Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, the first such legislation that it had attempted in over a 100 years. In Atlanta, a motel owner who happened to be his own lawyer 
something odd there. Uh, immediately filed a lawsuit that um, claimed he was being forced to serve black customers, and that would violate his own Fifth Amendment protections, his own implied First Amendment protections, and exceeded the powers of Congress under the Commerce Clause, the right, uh, the need, uh, necessary and proper clause, and believe it or not, the Thirteenth Amendment. Moral, uh, Morton Rolleston is this guy's name. Uh, if you've seen his name in the news recently, he's involved in a lawsuit against Tyler Perry right now. So he did not just go away. Tyler Perry, as in Medea, yeah. goes yeah. to jail. Yeah. <laughs> this guy okay. represented himself all the way to the United States Supreme Court, where we will end up today at some point, I'm sure. We're looking at uh, Article 1, Section 8, the vesting of power uh, in Congress. We've talked about the fact that the implied powers, we've talked about the broadness of all of this. We're going to kind of narrow this scope because really when you get down to there's all kinds of powers listed in here. And again, you could spend a lot of time on any of these. Criminy, there are people out there that could spend a year on to borrow on the credit of the United States, to borrow money on the credit of the United States. You could get into all kinds of discussions about uh, coining money. That's how I want to borrow money. <laughs> on the credit of the United States? Yeah, dude. Hell yeah. I could probably get a car loan. Probably. On the credit of the U.S. I know, look, I know we're not AAA anymore, but we're, I mean, we're $20,000 good. I could get a car loan. Look at all these assets we have. (laughs) Hell, we've got the entire state of Iowa we can put up as (laughs) as collateral. Yeah, exactly. Tell you what, man, if I default, take California. No, let's not give them California. No, yeah, you're right. That's one of the good ones. North Dakota. No, North Dakota's got oil. Let's Let's give give them some uh, flat corn intensive state. Illinois. All right. Works for me. Illinois, you can have it. Uh, one of my favorites, promote to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited time to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Ah, copyright. We can do a lot of stuff in here. One of my favorites, and uh, we're not going to get into this time around. We went into this last time, Grant Letters of Mark and Reprisal. And, uh, of course, my favorite story of Letters of Mark and Reprisal, the, the last time the United States issued one of those was, of course, in December of 1941, when uh, the submarine USS Greenling left Pearl Harbor right after the attack. And uh, it was not abundantly clear at that point that unrestricted submarine warfare was not the equivalent of piracy. It was not clear, right? Legally, and so. So what you what you're saying is that is that submarine warfare mm, might have been, maybe didn't mesh up with the the war conventions. They were unclear kind of. at that particular point. So Lieutenant Command, I believe, is uh, Grenfell, actually sailed with a letter of mark and reprisal, so that if he went out and just sank just Japanese ships, he could claim things. Hey. I've been authorized by my government to do so. That's awesome. And uh, little things like that went on. But as we look at all of these powers, we've got to understand some specific, we've got to understand some broader aspects of this. And I want you to to kind of follow along with me here and understand the thought processes that went into the outlining of these, pro, of these powers. The original Articles of Confederation, which were problematic, had limited Congress to, and, and there was a Congress before, under the Articles of Confederation, the Continental Congress. The, uh, the authority that that Congress had were, was limited to that which was expressly listed in the Articles of Confederation. In other words, there was no discussion about implied powers. There was no discussion about necessary and proper. It was simply, if it wasn't in the Constitution or the Articles of Confederation at that point, Congress was not authorized to do it. And the states would never have tolerated them doing that. The framers of the Constitution recognized in many ways that that 
in a lot of ways, was the root issue of the problem. It really was the problem. Is that Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, was essentially powerless to the point where it turned to the point where people weren't even showing up for Congress because what was the point? Why should I make all of this effort to go to Philadelphia or New York or wherever and vote on stuff of national importance only to have Rhode Island go, no, nope. we're not doing that, and then what? The, uh, the the problem became so intense that eventually they called uh, a constitutional convention and went, hey, let's work this over and try again. This time, however, the framers wanting to go beyond the Articles of Confederation, but at the same time limit government as best they could, outlined the specific powers that Congress had. And in doing so, they made those powers as specific as possible, while at the same time limiting them as much as possible. With that caveat of taking that word expressly out of there. To say that the framers did not intend for implied powers is an error, as they made clear in their own writings and in their own debates of that day. They did not want Congress limited strictly to exactly what was on that piece of paper. For the simple reason that, well, as, as Justice Marshall would write later on, they needed to to do things, and if they were going, there was a constitution they were talking about, not the U.S. Code. It was to be a broader outline of what to do, not specifically how to do it. Marshall made that very clear in a couple of his rulings. They left out that word expressly, and they added this particular cause at the end of Section 8, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. So this is kind of what we talked about last week about how they said, all right, look, go build a Navy, go figure out how to, how to you know, make financial transactions and stuff like that, and we'll leave the details up to you. Like, you can all just sort of sit around and figure it out. This is the part that says, look, you can do whatever you got to do to do those things. They said that, but even in saying that, they limited it. Uh-huh. And it has led to one of the more pervasive myths, I guess, of if you will, of the United States government, which is that we have three equal branches of government, and they have checks and balances upon one They're another. Not totally not equal. They are a. They were never intended to be equal, and they are not equal. Right. In point of fact, Congress first amongst equals. If you want to look at it that way, Congress is where all of this thing starts because Congress contained at that point two specific elements. It contained the Senate, which represented the state governments. The states considered themselves sovereign. And it contained the House, which was of we the people, which is where the real sovereignty lied. They didn't want executives and judges running things, at least not with some congressional, not without some congressional oversight. And Congress was given a little more leeway into how to do things. And that's really what Article 1, Section 8 is all about. It's quarter after, it's Afternoons Live, KFIV, KWSX, everywhere on iHeartRadio. It's Constitution Thursday. We're looking uh, at the vesting of power in horizontal methods, and I'll explain more about that in a minute, and how far does necessary and proper actually go. We'll be right back. I promised Carmen that the podcast would be up tonight. 
I think you lied. Hmm. Carmen, that may not happen. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome back for Friends Afternoons Live, KFIV, KWSX, everywhere for the iHeartRadio app. It is Constitution Thursday. You want to join us? Text machine is open and operating because, well, we have smartphones. 565-DAVE is the telephone number. It's also the text machine number. Phones are actually off, but the text machine, 565-DAVE, is available to you. We're looking at Article 1, Section 8, particularly the final clause, necessary and proper, along with the rest of it. It's um, it's one of the things that I've said all along, which is you can't take any given clause of the Constitution out of its context. Yeah, I get that you can make a claim based on a specific clause, but you can't really take any total, any clause completely out of what's gone. Necessary and proper in order to accomplish these goals that have been previously listed here in the Constitution. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's not necessary and proper to pass a law to make everybody wear a purple tutu. See, that's not in the powers of Congress. But in the powers of Congress are things such as to borrow money on the credit of the United States. Well, how do you do that? It's not spelled out in the Constitution. And so it's necessary and proper for the con- Congress of the United States to figure out, okay, what's the best way to do this? Along the way, they've decided that the first bank in the United States was the best way to do it. Then they decided that wasn't the best way to do it. Then they decided that the second bank was the best way to do it. Then they decided that that wasn't the best way to do it. And then back and forth. And Congress has, has eventually reached the system that we have today. Whether you like or dislike the system isn't the issue here. The, the issue is Congress is within its powers to do it that way. Um, uniform rules of naturalization. Bankruptcies. It, th- there are all kinds of things here that are that are outlined that the, the Congress is supposed to do. My favorite, of course, main, provide and maintain a Navy. But how do you do that? Necessary and proper makes them, gives them the ability to actually do those things within the limits of the Constitution. The framers were concerned, however, that the Congress would get outside of these powers and begin to do things that, frankly, they should not be doing. And so in three methods, they tried to limit the powers of Congress, but not using that word expressly as they had in the Articles of Confederation, limit Congress to not getting outside of those. The first thing they did was they tried to specify or at least be very clear as to the reason they were giving a power. Some of them are self-obvious. We were a continental power. You need a Navy. If you have an ocean... You need a Navy. That's just common sense. It makes sense. You don't really need, if I have to explain that to you, then, well, none of the rest of this is going to be there. To raise and support armies. It makes sense. You, you need armies. But they were clear about the fact that they did not want a standing army. No appropriation of money to that use will be longer term than two years. How about the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries for authors and inventors. They wanted to promote progress of science and useful arts. They wanted that to happen. And so they made it worthwhile for authors and inventors to be able to do that and make money off of their inventions. That seem reasonable to people today? I mean, it's, yeah, don't they? (laughs) Doesn't it? It seems like it should be until you start entering pharmaceutical companies into it, and then all of a sudden people get snooty about it. Well, they shouldn't be able to make that much money. Really? Because the Constitution says that they can. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think I think there's I think there's maybe 
some discussion worth having does it about promote that. the progress of science but and uh, useful arts no i'm just i'm just saying like like yeah they, they should be allowed to make money off of it of course but you know I, I think i think there's sometimes it goes too far maybe they wanted to be clear regulating commerce between the states between other nations between the indian tribes and we talked about that last week um why would it be important to establish a uniform rule of naturalization so that Georgia perhaps wasn't letting people in that that uh, Kentucky wanted instead, or so forth and so on. If each state was deciding who could become a citizen and who was naturalized, or who could be bankrupt and who couldn't be bankrupt, you could see the chaos that it would cause. They were very clear about why they were doing some of these powers. The second, and perhaps I think more important way that Congress was limited under the Constitution versus the Articles of Confederation, even with removing that word expressly, was that they were denied a specific power which Parliament had long enjoyed. Keep in mind, these were basically Englishmen, although they would have argued against that. They had years of experience with Parliament. Parliament was, to some degree, may still be a corrupt bargain from the word go. Parliament is a bought organization. You basically buy your way in, and you... Reward those who paid for your way in. That's the way Parliament has worked for many, many, many years. That sounds familiar. It does, doesn't it? They were concerned that that Congress might become that way. And so they put some specific limits on what Congress could do. They denied to Congress the power to play favorites amongst the states, i.e., they were to promote the general welfare. They were to provide for the common defense. Not for the defense of New York, but not Rhode Island, because we don't like them. Not for, I hate to go World War Z on you here, but, but, but not to pull back behind the Rocky Mountains and go, well, there would have been some constitutional issues there if you wanted to look at it in that way. They obviously didn't, but uh, there you, you go. Think the founding fathers were not ready for Zot. They were required to make uniform duties, imposts, and excises, taxes. Uniform bankruptcy and naturalization laws. And perhaps the most important one, John, and this becomes an argument, it's an argument even today. They were required to establish a national capital that was outside of the jurisdiction of any state. Why? Because they didn't want to play favorites. If they had one state had the capital, that state would naturally be inclined to receive, shall we say, additional benefits that were not available to other states. And yet even today... In 2013, you will hear at some point this year, you heard it last year, you heard it the year before that, you heard it the year before, you will hear at some point the movement for D.C. statehood. D.C. deserves representation. D.C. should be... No, it shouldn't. In point of fact, nothing could be further from the truth that D.C. should have representation. But what about the people that live there, Dave? It's 10 square miles. It was picked because... It was in the middle of nowhere, and they didn't want people to live in there. People want representation. All they got to do is move, I don't know, three miles in any direction, and guess what? They've got representation. I realize that's harsh, but if D.C. were to become its own state, consider the violation of the Constitution. It would be an unconstitutional violation. It would require an amendment to the Constitution. It was unlike Parliament, which not only played favorites and did so willingly, but made a lot of money doing it. 
And see, our framers didn't want Congress people playing favorites. They didn't want congressmen going, you know, we should build this here because one of my friends owns that land and, you know, he'll make a good deal, sell it. They didn't want any of that happening. And so they went to great pains that's to like make all sure they do on Boardwalk Empire that that didn't happen. Wait, what? Yeah. Huh. Wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> During Prohibition, man. Well, that was the second per- that was the second limit on Congress. All right, so we had the first limit, which was um, uh, specifying the reason. Mm. We have laws now that don't seem to have any specific reason. I mean, Supreme Court today asked a simple question: Why did Congress pass the Defense of Marriage Act? And nobody seemed to be able to give a cogent answer as to that, which is weird. Hmm. They were denied the power to play favorites amongst the states, and yet. Every congressman in Congress today runs a uh, slick, franked mailer that you paid for that talks about what the bacon they brought home, huh? We're yep. supposed to be able to do Here's that. what I did for us, for our constituents. The third thing that was supposed to be in place here to prevent any of this from going awry was that only laws that were both, both necessary and proper would have been considered constitutional by the Supreme Court. No law could be passed to accomplish objects that were not entrusted to the government, wrote the Chief Justice John Marshall, the great Chief Justice, in 1819. Only laws that were contributing to the accomplishment of all these things listed here were to be considered constitutional. You follow what I'm saying here? Only laws that fit into Article 1, Section 8, and some of the others as well, were to be considered constitutional. And yet, we have laws that seem to be uh, well outside of any of these domains, do they not? Hours of a Congress were, in fact, originally intended to be horizontal, not vertical. They were not stretched over the people. They were over the other branches of government. What, you say? Congress had authority over the other branches? Of course they did. Go read Section 8 again. It's Congress... First among equals that decides how the other branches are structured. How many courts are there? Constitution says the Supreme Court. What does it say about inferior courts? Who establishes the inferior courts? Who decides how many justices are on the courts? Who decides how the courts operate? Who decides to give the courts money to operate? Who decides how many departments there are in the executive branch? Who decides who gets to be in charge of those departments? president nominates somebody, but then what happens? Congress says, we don't like that guy. No. Or, yeah, we think John Kerry will do fine at Secretary of State. Go forth and be Secretary of State. Congress also has investigatory powers. In the, in the, in the vein of the grand jury we were talking about, both houses of Congress have the ability to investigate all of these other organizations. They don't have the power to investigate Congress. In fact, the only people that can investigate Congress is Congress. They determine what organizational issues need to be determined in these other organizations. Congress has all of this power over all these of the other two branches. They then take that power that Congress entrusts to them and use it in the manner which Congress has determined for them to use it. When we complain about the EPA going too far, when we complain about Commerce Department going too far, when we complain about the Army spending buttload of money on transportation vouchers that it shouldn't be spending on while it's bitching about the sequester, 
should be arguing, should be yelling at Congress. They're the ones that authorized them to do it, and they're the ones that can rein them in. We've forgotten all that. We've forgotten the fact that the other branches do, in fact, answer to Congress and thus to the sovereign, which is we the people, especially even more so now that we popularly elect senators. The powers are horizontal, not vertical. And it's there that we've begun to run into a little bit of issue, isn't it? It's half past the hour, 565-DAVE, 565-3283 is the text machine number. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Back afternoons live, KFIV, KWSX, iHeartRadio. It is a Constitution Thursday. 565 Dave is the text machine number. Email Dave Diamond Show at clearchannel.com. Looking at Article 1, Section 8, specifically the final clause necessary and proper. Make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or any department or officer thereof. You see now why, with this horizontal structure, they had to ask that in there. Not just vested by this Constitution, the government of the United States, the entire government, or any department or officer thereof. They were very clear about who was in charge of stuff. It was Congress all along. Some point you're going to run into somebody who said, oh, three co-equal branches of government. You can look at them and say, no, they're not. Because even today, Let's uh, let's take for sake of argument. Let's take um, I don't know budget office. President's late on his budget again. Why is the president doing a budget anyway? Because Congress back in nineteen told him to do a budget. He's not doing it. Why isn't it Congress standing up and going? Well, you're not doing what we told you to do. Therefore, we'll sanction you. We'll fine you, or we'll take it away from you. You're not getting your job done. Doesn't it seem like? I mean, John, if we didn't do our job, wouldn't they find somebody else to do it? They'd say, well, you guys aren't doing the job. You're out of here. Yeah, but, I mean, it would almost be like, I mean, doesn't it kind of seem more like, you know, let's let's say, you know, somebody somebody besides us is given a job to do, and they're like, eh, I don't like doing it. Why don't you and why don't you and John do it? Right. And then and then their boss comes to us and is like, what the hell, guys? <laughs> then you come a number of ways to look at this, including yeah. <laughs> including the best way to look at it, which is that Congress decided they didn't want to do it, and so they sloughed it off on the executive. Right. Oh, we don't want to do that. The best way for us to do it. Within the Constitution, they can do that. Was it the wisest thing to do? Probably not. And that's why I bring up the point about the first and second U.S. banks, which is we can change things. We can send people to Congress and go, well, this is not the best way to do that. Let's revamp. Let's reorganize our government. Mm. Everybody talks a lot about that, but they never actually do it. Those branches then take the other two branches, take the powers that have been invested in them by Congress, and they carry forth to do all of those things. But for all of that, an interesting quote uh, yesterday by by Benjamin Franklin about the fact that the uh, the Constitution, even with its flaws, if they are such, he said, is the best we have. It's it's We have to look at it in the context of what we're trying to achieve, which is... Well, we can have a bloody civil war leading to a monarchy, or we can have a self-government. Wh- which do you prefer? I mean, sure, there are 
probably some problems in this, and we'll we'll figure those out. But see, we left this section in there where we can change things if as we need to. And literally within the first Congress meeting, they began to change things. They added eleven amendments. They introduced fourteen right off the bat, and eleven of them got passed within the first couple of years of the Constitution being adopted. But there was one area, John, that they left completely off that, in fact, specifically said Congress shall have no power over this whatsoever. None. Stay out of it, they said over and over again. What was that power? It was the power to do anything about that peculiar, 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 peculiar yeah. institution called slavery. Congress was specifically forbidden from doing anything about it. They did uh, cease the importation of slavery. They did do some things, but they knew that if they went too far, they would not get a constitution. And the Civil War that would eventually engulf the nation was put on hold in 1789. This became such an issue, of course, that in 1861, as the nation began to fracture over slavery, Mm. with the election of Abraham Lincoln, who was clearly not... An abolitionist. This is, this is one of the great myths of history is that Lincoln was an abolitionist. He was not. Abolitionist. What did I say? Abolitionist? Yeah. Are you combining it with ablutions? No. <laughs> really not, but potato, potato, uh, with an E. Uh, the point being that he was not in that vein. He was willing to do whatever it took to maintain the Union, and he was clear about that. But after his election, as the country began to fracture apart, South Carolina seceding, followed by other states, Ohio Representative Thomas Corwin proposed the 13th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which said in it at the time, and this did did not actually come into law, as you know, this amendment was to explicitly and irrevocably disclaim congressional power forever to abolish or interfere within any state with the domestic institutions thereof. So they basically put that in there to be like, hey, Southern states, it's totally okay if you ratify the Constitution, because look. Well, this would have been the 13th Amendment in 1861. Uh Basically, we're saying to Congress, thou shalt not intervene in the state's domestic institutions. Now, today, or in 1861, that clearly meant one thing. But in 1868, the 14th Amendment clearly meant one thing, did it not? Right. What does it mean today? Imagine, if you will, if the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution didn't read slavery shall be banned henceforth and forevermore, but in fact read Congress shall not intervene in any way, shape, or form henceforth or forevermore in the domestic institutions of any state. What would well, we be talking I mean, that sounds what would pretty we, broad. What would we be talking about today? This did obviously not become law. Lincoln, however, agreed with this position. In his first inaugural address, he actually said, holding such a provision to now be implied in constitutional law, I have no objection to it being made express. Congress and the president agreed in 1861 that Congress should keep their hands off of state institutions, domestic institutions. It did not come to pass that way. And eventually the Civil War led to the destruction of the slavery issue and the resolution of that question once and for all. We returned then to congressional powers being necessary and proper to deliver 
on all of the powers of Congress, one of which was implied anyway to be the equalization of all members of our society. In in the 1880s, Congress passed the first series of civil rights legislation, which led to eventually what would be known as separate but equal doctrine. That is, it's okay as long as the scenarios are equal, it's okay to be separate based on racial issues. You can have a a whites-only bus or a whites-only drinking fountain, and you can have a, as they called it, colored drinking fountain. Or you can say it's it's the same bus, but you ride in this section, you ride in that section, or you can't sit at this, or you can't go to that school or this school, so forth and so on. By the mid-1960s, of course, this had become unacceptable. And in 1964, the United States Congress passed the Civil Rights Legislation of 1964. The day after it was passed, our friend down in Atlanta, by the name of Morton Rolleston, filed his lawsuit on behalf of his hotel, which he owned at the corner of, I believe it's on Peachtree, and it's where it's right where the Hilton Hotel is now in downtown Atlanta, right off Highway Interstate 75, 85. The heart of Atlanta, it was known, and he had 216 hotel rooms right off the main freeway there in Atlanta, and he did not want to serve black people. He felt it was a violation of his Fifth Amendment rights, he said. You're depriving me of my property by making me serve people I don't want to serve. That was his actual argument. He also argued under the 13th Amendment, which banned slavery, that somehow or another Congress had gone too far in forcing him to do so. He argued under the Commerce Clause that Congress could not, in fact, do this. The United States said... Yeah, we can. Necessary and proper. And it went before the justices. It's quarter till 565-DAY, 565-3283. Stay with us. We'll be right back. So there we are, John. It is now October of 1964, literally months after the, uh, well, it passed in July of 1964, July 2nd, immediately signed into law by President then Johnson. Immediately the lawsuit was filed against the Civil Rights Act saying that if you force me as a hotel owner to open up hotel rooms to black people, it will violate my Fifth Amendment rights. As well as others. <laughs> well... By extension, it would be his First Amendment rights. Kind of I mean, laundry listy. Yeah, I, I, this Thirteenth Amendment thing is just amazing to me. I don't know really where he was going. That it seems like um, seemed like he was just throwing everything in there he could possibly get at this. Um, his two hundred sixteen motel room. Uh, he filed suit in federal court, arguing that the requirements of the act exceeded the authority granted to Congress via the interstate commerce law. In addition, he owned, uh, argued that the act violated his Fifth Amendment rights to choose his customers and operate his business as he wished and resulted in unjust deprivation of his property without due process of law and just compensation. Finally, he argued that Congress had placed him in a position of involuntary servitude by forcing him to rent available rooms to blacks and thereby, thereby violating his 13th Amendment rights. Now, we look at this with 2013 eyes and go... I mean, what's the first thought that pops into your head when you hear that somebody didn't want to serve people of color? 
1964 in Atlanta, Georgia. I've told you before that I was uh, stationed in Atlanta for many, many years. And in the mid-1990s, I met people who had ridiculous racial biases, John. I mean, I mean, I think everybody has encountered. But is a ridiculous racial bias not protected speech? Well, I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, we can't, you can't go after, you know, we've talked about the Westboro Baptist Church in the past for the, you know, the, the arguably heinous stuff that they say, uh, you know, the, the, the neo-Nazis exist in America, you know, and, and as long as they're not breaking any laws or whatever, they're allowed to say whatever stupid crap they want. Seems that way, doesn't it? And so this goes before the court. The United States argues, no, we do have the right view to enforce this this civil rights legislation. The uh, the fifth district, uh, the, the the court down there said, no, you know what? Not providing accommodation for black Americans who are traveling severely interferes with interstate travel, especially since you're right off of I-75, the newly constructed interstate. I mean, literally a stone's throw from it. Under the uh, Commerce Clause, they were within their power to address such measures. Moreover, they argued that the Fifth Amendment does not forbid reasonable regulation of interstate commerce. And as such, incidental damage did not constitute the taking of property without just compensation. Third, they argued that the 13th Amendment implied primary to slavery and uh, the removal of widespread disabilities associated with it in kind. Uh, the amendment would not place issues of racial discrimination in public accommodations beyond the reach of federal and state law. District Court ruled in favor, of course, of the United States, issued a permanent injunction regarding uh, requiring the Heart of Atlanta Motel to refrain from using racial discrimination in terms of goods and services. He appealed this to the Supreme Court on December 14th, a mere, well, less than five, six months after the law had gone into effect, John, the Supreme Court issued their rule. Court held that Congress had acted within its jurisdiction on the Interstate Commerce Clause, passing the Civil Rights Law of 1964. They, uh, while it may have been con- possible for Congress to pursue other methods for abolishing racial discrimination, the way Congress did so, according to the court, was perfectly valid found no merit in the argument pursuant to the 13th Amendment, which really I'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find one. Having observed that 75% of the Atlanta Heart Atlanta Motel client came from out of state and that it was located right on I-7585 as well as two major U.S. highways, the court found that the business clearly affected interstate commerce. Such it found that the permanent injunction was valid and off we went and the Heart of Atlanta was no longer able to racially discriminate on the basis, well, of race in its services to... People. Congress had, in fact, determined, and the courts had allowed, the necessary and proper law, which one could argue was for the general welfare of the country. Which, of course, brings us to today, as we run out of time, as we often do. Whether you're for or anti, whether you support, defend, is the real issue whether or not gay people... Or is the issue whether or not we, the people, have made the decision? That's the question that I keep asking myself. Did Congress exceed its authority? Did the courts allow it to do so? Wherever this all ends up. Back in six. That's really what it comes down to, John. Four, again, left, right. Once upon a time, they tried to pass an amendment to the Constitution saying that Congress cannot interfere with the internal domestic arrangements of any state. 
never came to pass, but Lincoln said he was okay with that, that, that he understood that's what the Constitution meant. And yet yesterday we were arguing before the court whether or not Congress and the courts have the ability to interfere in the domestic relationships of the state. And today we're arguing whether or not Congress has the power to define those domestic relationships. Did they go too far? Did they not go far enough? Is it necessary and proper? That's the real question that should be being answered here in my mind. Not whether or not person A can marry person B. Well, and and that's I mean, if we're talking about you know the ideal situation here in that you know the the federal government is making decisions divorced of any you know personal are, feelings on the matter. You are know? those powers listed, enumerated in there, and are they necessary and proper? Any laws related to them necessary and proper for the advancement of those powers? Now, if you want to get into a theological discussion, that's a different matter. Theology is pretty clear on the issue. But theology was intentionally left out of our government. I personally do not support gay marriage because I take a theological position. But I wonder if Congress, the government, should be involved with it at all. I don't see it as necessary and proper for them to be. We'll see what the court decides, I guess, when everything comes down to it. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there, so don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. I'm Dave. That's John. Have a wonderful evening, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow for a fun Friday on a Thursday episode of Afternoons Live on KFIV 1360 AM Modesto, KWSX 1280 AM Stockton, everywhere via iHeartRadio. Have a great night. Stay tuned. Rusty's next. Afternoons Live is a slippery fish entertainment production for Clear Channel Media and Entertainment Modesto.